This is a story about a dude named Lane. He moved to the mainland and bought one place to stay. And then one day he went and tried to rent them out. And then he became one real investor man. Hey guys, this is Lane with the Simple Passive Cashflow Podcast. Today we have Victor Minash. He is the managing partner of the U.S. Real Estate Partners LP. And he's also the author of the book Magnetic Capital, How to Raise All the Money You Need for Any Worthy Venture. How are you doing, Victor? Great to be here. You are a very successful capital raiser and developer, but uh, you didn't start off in the real estate. Tell us about your story and how you first began in tech. Yeah, my path into real estate development was not your typical career path. Uh, I started out my career as an electrical engineer, in fact, designing microprocessors, largely for telecom applications. You know, Back in the mid-1980s, I uh, designed microprocessors that essentially control the phone network. So about half the phone calls in North America went through a chip that I designed. They were, they were routed and processed by a chip that I designed for about a decade. And then I went you know, through various uh, promotions into middle and senior management in both public and private companies. And along the way, uh, got involved in raising money for technology ventures, uh, did a lot of business development work, did five M&A transactions. And it was really in that arena that I learned how to raise capital. And uh, around 2010, made the decision to move out of technology into real estate investment on a full-time basis. And at that time, realized that, you know, eventually I was going to run out of money and had to, to some extent, relearn the process of raising capital and discovered that it was almost identical to what I'd been doing before, just in a slightly different arena. Uh, so I was able to leverage a lot of the skill sets out of technology, whether it be project management or uh, capital raising. And, uh, you know, certainly the, the engineering skills came in handy to uh, to put together these projects. So how long did that point take to get to there, to running out of money and coming to that oh, to running point? out of money? You know, real estate's a game with pretty big numbers. So that happens fairly quickly. You know, it took about a year and a half, maybe two years to run out of money. Uh, and then I started bringing in a few joint venture partners on some projects, um, wasn't raising capital on a large scale. Um, and then, you know, 2011, 2012 started bringing in more and more investors. Uh, so today, you know, we're doing syndications. We're doing much larger projects, uh, mostly ground up developments, um, uh, new apartment buildings, uh, some of them greenfield developments, some are infill developments. Uh, if your listeners don't know the difference, infill is typically in an urban setting where you've got all of the services and everything right to the property line, whereas Greenfield, you're basically going to do the land development, bury the services and roads, uh, and then and then go vertical on, on the construction of the final product. I began in the syndication, learning about it maybe about a couple of years ago, going to a seminar. Something that was helpful for me to see other people doing it, because at one time, I, I thought it was just this foreign concept, and a lot of the listeners are, are thinking that, but I mean, you mentioned you started with doing JVs here and there, whereas I kind of just jumped right into the syndication and the PPM world. How did you structure those first uh, couple couple deals? And maybe did you also have that mindset that, well, this is something big and a little bit overwhelmed by the whole idea? I wouldn't say that it was overwhelming. Those uh, initial joint ventures were typically on smaller projects, some single family homes, uh, some smaller multi-unit residential, triplexes, fourplexes, things like that. And so it was relatively easy to bring in one in, one investment partner into that project, um, often on a 50-50 basis. 
And uh, we put those projects together with folks that, you know, we had strong relationships with, uh, you know, m folks that we'd known for like 20 years uh, came in on some of these projects. And then we expanded from there uh, once we got into larger projects. So, you know, one of, I think one of the mistakes that a lot of investors make, especially when they're starting out, is they think it's all about the deal. And in my experience, it's, it's almost never about the deal. For me, it's about putting together a business, a stream of investment that you can do in roughly the same geographic area so that you can leverage everything that you've invested in building and developing the team that's going to actually execute these projects on the ground. Because that's really where the differentiation is. You know, a good, a good deal badly managed is no deal. So the only differentiation is always the management, the quality of people that you have on the ground. And, uh, I, you know, I knew that back in my technology days. And oddly enough, I kind of had to relearn that lesson when I transitioned into real estate, because like many people, I thought it was about the deal. You know, if you can buy something cheap enough, then, uh, you know, and, and, and the, uh, the comps for the, the finished product are, are strong enough, you'll make money. And we had a few examples where projects were mismanaged. And, you know, we saw a $100,000 margin evaporate through mismanagement and then realized, wait a minute, we really need to pay much, much closer attention to the quality of the management. So today we focus on concentration of assets. We really uh, invest in a few select geographies where we've got those strong teams on the ground. And, um, and then when you have that track record, raising the money is relatively easy. The analogy that I've heard is spinning a whole bunch of plates. And the plates in this case would be raising money, finding the deal, operating the deal, and, uh, oh, yeah, you know, working with lenders and, uh, you know, doing the marketing. A lot of different roles. Um, I guess when, when you first got started, even in your JV days, did you have a, a dedicated partner or did you just have strong team members? And were you just the, the one CEO I started out in my own local market doing a, a handful of projects and then very quickly realized that the hands-on management was, you know, the limiting factor. And, uh, you know, I was actually attending a mastermind in San Diego. We were out there on, uh, on Harbor Island on the, in the penthouse of a hotel, and I was presenting my strategy to this particular mastermind group. And one of the bright gentlemen seated uh, around the boardroom table said to me, Victor, you're expending energy doing project management here. That's something you can hire. Your gift is raising money. That's all you should do. The rest you can hire. And it took someone telling me that for me to realize that that was indeed my gift, my differentiation, and that's what I should focus on. And from that point forward, uh, I, I shifted strategy in terms of where I placed my own time and energy and how we structured our teams. Because, you know, like, like he said, I can hire those other skills. I can't hire out that core function of raising capital. That's something that I need to do. Right. And this is a, a topic that I've heard come up a lot in my circles is this idea of, you know, you either got to be a fundraiser or a deal operator. And it's very left brain, uh, right brain, different type of tasks. And nobody can do it both of them effectively because you're going to be switching one side of your brain on and the other side of your brain on. Uh, so, so when you made this discovery and you went into your fundraising mode and conceivably done your highest and best use, did you find someone to be your operator full-time? You know, was this a dedicated partner or was it you know, just based on the deal? 
Yeah, so today we're in multiple geographies and um, uh, we have strong boots on the ground teams that are really tasked with managing the construction and the property management of, of each of the projects. And, and that's key. It really is. You know, those people, that, that's what they do full time. And, you know, they get compensated accordingly, you know, some through property management fees, some through an equity position, you know, so we structure these deals in such a way that it's a, it's a win-win for everybody. Talk about a little bit what kind of projects you're working on these days, um, a little bit different than uh, the, uh, the cash flowing apartment, the multifamily deals. I kind of see it as, you know, there's these flippers out there and they'll kind of move up the food chain. They'll do little single family homes, then they'll do uh, little larger uh, properties and then do the, the high end flips, like, you know, the $800,000 homes in Seattle and kind of move their way up on the development hat because it's harder for new people to come in and be competitive. And that's kind of what you've done. Um, maybe talk to us a little bit about what projects you're working on at this point. It's a little bit more infill and greenfield. One of the strongest um, asset classes, in my opinion, is multifamily investment. Resilient to economic cycles. In particular, student housing is very resilient to economic cycles. And uh, so we, we like that asset class a lot. Uh, but what I find is that most of the larger projects, when they come on the market today, it's like a feeding frenzy. There's, you know, sometimes 20 or, or more offers on a single property. And if there's 20 offers, I don't want to be the winning bidder ever. You know, if there's 19 guys behind me, unless I know something they don't, I don't want to win that auction. So because what's happening is people are paying way too much. They're paying silly, silly numbers, whereas I can build, you know, Sheet of drywall hasn't gone up that much in price over the last several years. So I can build for far less than things are going in the open market. And, you know, often for 25, 30% less than, than properties are selling for in the open market. So yes, it's more work. Yes. It's a tiny bit more risk. Uh, and yes, you got to be more patient, but if I can generate 30% margin uh, right at the beginning of a project, simply by having the, the guts to build it, why not? That, that's huge value creation. I mean, some people say the draw that they see for the multifamily, the, the existing multifamily, is that you're getting you know high single digits, mid single digits, a cash flow, and then that's and then you get the kicker at the end. But uh, you know, I mean, just to talk in general of IRs, I mean, thirty percent is definitely higher than what you're getting on these multifamily projects. But again, there's the risk, right? You're not getting the uh, the cash flow throughout the investment, and it's more at the end. We'll take a, a piece of land that maybe has a structure on it, maybe two or three properties together. We'll do a land assembly so that we can build a multi-unit building. It doesn't have to be a very large building. It could even be just a dozen units. And, you know, it's going to take us about a year to 18 months to get that built and leased up. That's typically what we're seeing. So yes, you've got some carrying costs during that those first 18 months, but you're going to put reserves in there for that. You're going to put interest reserves, reserves for for insurance and property taxes and all of your carrying costs. And it's just another line item in your budget, the same as same as your foundation and and, and your lumber. It's just another line item in the budget. And um, once it's leased up, you now have a stabilized product, the same as you would have if you were buying an existing asset. So our goal is the same whether you're buying an existing asset or building it new, we're, our, our end game is the same. The classes of buildings that you, you're creating. And you know, I mean, most times when these new developments will come online, they're all for the, the class A property owners. 
I mean, this this country needs more middle class, working class, livable areas. I mean, what, is there a way that you can fill the void with more B class housing? We're focused primarily on B and B plus housing. Absolutely, you know, I think that a lot of the a lot of the new construction and multi has been focused on class A because when you run a spreadsheet, that gives you the best return on investment. You get the highest rents, but the demand for class A, with the exception of a few select areas, the demand. Uh, it simply isn't there to the extent that it's been built. Now, we've gone through a period of probably five, six years with almost no new construction. You know, from 2008 through 2014, we saw, uh, you know, very, very little in the way of new construction. So there's a lot of pent-up demand. But if I look where we are today, uh, I see signs that things are starting to get a little bit overbuilt, uh, in my opinion, especially in Class A. And when I talk to lenders, um, I, I'm hearing the same thing. So that's our perspective. We prefer to build B plus. Uh, it, it rents well. Uh, we like to go into areas that are just outside a really hot area. Uh, we call our strategy buy on the line, move the line. And, and what this is all about, every single city in America has this situation where you've got a hot neighborhood and then there's this dividing line and you go a couple of blocks too far and you're in the hood. And if you... If that line is arbitrary, if that line can be moved, you know, meaning it's not a municipal boundary or it's not a school district, if that line is movable because often they are, then maybe the thing to do is just buy on the wrong side of that line. Don't go too deep on the wrong side, but right on the line and redevelop it, put a little bit of scale behind it so you convince the marketplace that the line is moved and now the line's on the other side of your property. And you get valuations, you get appraisals from the good area because there's nothing comparable in the hood. So you're often able to generate 95% anyway of the, the value of the great neighborhood, but you're often buying the land at a deep discount to the market. Create tremendous value that way. I think this is a great idea and, and great social impact that you know, we're not just building stuff for rich people. We're building stuff more for the middle class. And I think that's, you know, most people come through and build an A-class uh, facility and it'll just kind of be a money grab. So something I'm, I'm wanting to learn more about is, you know, I mean, with, with the A-class, the thought is that since you're going to go through all the trouble getting permits, getting, you know, doing the deal, all the brain damage associated, you might as well take it up to that A-class, that rehab level or that construction level, whereas to not take it up to that point and not get those higher rents or the, the higher purchases, kind of leaving money on the table. I mean, I'm just kind of thinking here and maybe... What are some other ways that B-class, you find consistencies there, either your marketing, maybe does the properties fill up quicker in the B-class, B-plus class that's making you uh, close the gap and uh, get that money that's kind of left on the table and, and make it a profitable business venture? I look at it this way. I don't have to necessarily get the maximum possible rent that you can get in a marketplace. Not everybody is going to get the top rent in the market. The market simply isn't that big. If I think about one of the markets that we're very heavily invested in, which is Philadelphia, there's been about 4,000 units of new construction in the downtown core, a lot of condominium buildings, and typically about a quarter of condo units are purchased by investors and end up in the rental market. So that's a fair bit of capacity being injected into the market. So if there's 4,000 units of new construction, you can imagine about 1,000 of those are going to end up in the rental market with all of the class A amenities associated with that. 
Now, if those don't rent, they they only have one choice, and that's to come down market in price because they're not going to want to sit vacant. You know, if they're not going to get two grand a month for a two bedroom, they're going to come down to eighteen hundred, sixteen hundred, see what they can get. You know, if I'm if I'm building new product specifically that's designed to make money at fourteen hundred a month, and you know, give me very good margins, well. And I'm getting fourteen hundred a month or fourteen seventy five. Doesn't matter what the number is. If I'm hitting my numbers, I don't care that someone else is getting more as long as I'm able to consistently hit my numbers. So, what's the thought on building these properties for rent or for purchase? How does that shift the, uh, the economics on your build? It, it certainly changes the way you do your finishes. Uh, you know, we build good quality finished products. We you know we put in hardwood flooring, uh, granite counters, stainless appliances. So we do finish to a fairly high level. It's not a luxury level of finish that, you know, we're not necessarily putting in, um, you know, soaker tubs with jacuzzis and all of that kind of stuff. But it's a really good quality, high-end finish that people are going to be very happy to call home. And, um, you know, when you when you have a, a rental building, you obviously are going to be concerned with maintenance. So, you know, we design things in such a way that, if possible, we can minimize the number of times we have to enter have to enter a unit if we can service for example the furnace and the water heater from uh, from a common hallway rather than having to enter a unit we'll design the building that way uh, some considerations that you wouldn't necessarily think of if you're just building a single family home for resale are there any uh, specific data sources that people at home have access to that you look at to kind of get a sense of hey should we build this for renters or should we build this for uh, the class B uh, buyer? You definitely have to do your local market research. And, you know, real estate is a a hyper local game. You know, even if you're investing outside your own home market, you know, if you were to ask me, uh, you know, what do I think of the Nashville market, for example, it's kind of a silly question. Uh, it's, It's really the wrong question. If you ask me, what is the market within you know, uh, six blocks of the university. Now, that's an interesting conversation. Now, you can talk about what, you know, what's happening in that submarket. And that's what you need to do in every city. You need to figure out what's happening at the local level. And, uh, you know, if, if I'll, again, go back to Philadelphia. Um, you know, all of our properties are within probably a 10-block radius. We don't know the whole Philadelphia market. I know North Philly. I know um, you know, west of Temple University and Burrytown, these few neighborhoods within about a 10 block radius. The rest of the city, I don't know. I, I have no expertise. We talk a lot about syndications on this podcast, and most of the time, these offers are only for those with an accredited status per the rules of the SEC. Now sponsoring the Simple Passive Cash Flow podcast is the American Homeowner Preservation Fund, a crowdfunding solution to the mortgage crisis in America, empowering investors to fund the purchase of distressed mortgages. The AHP fund aims to keep people in their homes by investing in notes. It's an opportunity to earn returns while feeling good about making positive social impact. You can start investing with as little $100. You can learn more at investinhp.com. And if you want the free Burn Zone book, please send me an email at lane at simplepassivecashflow.com. Yeah, I think I, I think I, what I like about here is that you're doing something that not a lot of people are doing, and, and that's where you're getting the, the inconsistent competition level, and that's what's really helping driving your business. 
Um, and right. let's talk a little bit about like the student housing and, and also maybe military housing, the specialty areas. I mean, aren't, aren't the um, the student housing, I mean, I've always been uncomfortable doing that because a lot of it is based on the student bubble and, and basically how Sally Mae is making everybody go to college these days on a bubble. And at some point, people are going to realize that these college educations aren't worth it. There could be a big dip in the student housing population or things could drastically change. That's possible. Again, it it really depends on what's happening at the local, again, at the local level. You have some universities where there is an acute shortage of housing, where you've got a growing campus, um, you've got too many people commuting to the campus, and there isn't sufficient housing nearby. Uh, You also have other examples of other universities where where it's been overbuilt, uh, where the university has built a lot of residents and uh, the local market uh, let's say the third-party housing market is is saturated. So there's examples of both. You just have to do your local research and find out, you know, what's uh, what what the situation is. You know, for us, for example, in Philadelphia, we noticed that there was a surplus of three and four-bedroom units because much of the student housing was built into existing structures, you know, hundred-year-old townhouses or duplexes, and you know they. The, the most sensible thing to do from an income perspective is to maximize the number of bedrooms, a lot of three and four bedroom units. So a surplus of threes and fours, but a shortage of ones and twos. Today we're only building ones and twos because that's what the market's demanding. We even have situations where a single person has rented a three bedroom because that's all they could find. Right. Because if you get three and four uh, students together in the beginning of the year, you know, there's going to be some kind of problem and someone's going to have to drop out or someone's going to get into a fight and, the ones and two bedrooms are just the way to go in that circumstance. It, it varies. You know, people, there's all different personalities. Often st- students in, you know, first and second year, they like having friends around and uh, like the, the social aspect of that. You get people that are more, let's say, in graduate school or medical school or something like that. The last thing they want is people around them. They've got work to do. They're on odd hours because maybe they're, you know, they're uh, in a residency or something like that. And uh, so they, they just need their quiet, their space somewhere to, you know, go home and sleep at two in the afternoon if that's what they need. You know, the needs are just a little bit different. You need to know your market. Any thoughts on military housing? Not for military, but very close to military bases. We've not done anything in that arena. It's not something we know much about. What I, what I can say is if there's been lots of examples of, um, you know, it's, it's kind of like being tied to a single employer and if that employer moves or you know makes a policy decision to close a base or you know to deploy people to a different location which they often do now you've made a long-term investment for what ends up being a short-term source of income and that can be a huge problem so generally we try and stay away from those the student housing seems to be a lot more uh, conservative it seems like the government can be a lot more uh, knee-jerk reaction and, and move people around as opposed to, you know, colleges are, are here to stay and you know, it's a lot slower moving population, I think. Yeah, exactly. So, Victor, are there any uh, tax credits you guys are getting on these? Because I know some multifamily, you know, you know there's the lurk or different tax credit the operator can get to uh, sweeten the, the investment a little bit for their investors. It's not so much tax credits. We often get property tax abatements. So, for example, in certain areas where the government is looking to stimulate a new development, they will often offer tax abatements. So you pay 
the tax on the the vacant land or the raw land or whatever's there, but you pay zero on the any improvements for often as much as ten years, and so that you know that's a significant inducement, and uh, it certainly helps make the numbers work. Uh, you know, obviously it has to work without without that inducement, but uh, but it but it makes a difference. Are you specifically looking for zones where there are? these uh these tax credits available or is it just you you pick the area and just it happens to fall in place if it does um certainly in the work we've done in philadelphia the area that we were invested in it's had that some of the work that we're doing in louisiana we it's been more negotiated on a case-by-case basis so for example if let's say we're funding the paving over of a road because the city may not have it in their own budget then we'll say all right we'll tell you what we'll 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 pave the road but please, you know, give us a tax abatement for, for a few years so that we can recover the cost of that road because it really should have been the city that should have paid for it. So it go, it's a little bit on a case-by-case basis. Switching gears on you, I just kind of want to get your, uh, your opinion on the recent hurricanes. How do, how do you view a situation like that where, uh, you know, you have this opportunity? Is, that, is it just a short-term thing in your eyes, or is there some real potential that you can come in at value in? and uh, do a project here and there in these, these areas. There are some very significant long-term opportunities that, that have come out of this. Uh, not all of them in the States, by the way. Uh, certainly there's a lot of opportunity to rebuild things stateside. I'm sure there will be distressed properties appearing on the market, people that were either uninsured or underinsured, and that'll be certainly along the coast of Florida, on the, on the Gulf Coast, and probably even in, in and around Houston as well. Um, you know, what I'm hearing is that only a small percentage of people actually carried flood insurance. You know, some of that will be picked up by FEMA, uh, but even then, not everybody is eligible for FEMA. You know, for example, if someone is a, a non-resident owner, they might, you know, they may be uh, a foreign owner, someone from the UK or Canada, somewhere like that. They may not be eligible for FEMA funding. And if they didn't carry flood insurance, you've got now uh, damaged properties that may end up appearing on the market. Um, more importantly, I think there's some very significant rebuild opportunities in the islands, in the Caribbean. Uh, and uh, I can't, I'm not ready to announce anything yet, but we're talking to, uh, you know, some folks about, you know, maybe making some fairly significant moves on some of the islands that have been really devastated by this latest round of storms over the last two weeks. You've got an investor and I kind of pose this uh, this question because this is a lot of the situation that a lot of the listeners are in. You know, they've had some success in their own real estate investing and, you know, their friends and family or people have heard what they, they've been doing, kind of heard of their success, but they're still not quite sold on the whole concept. What's your overall approach to you know, talking to someone who's just pretty new at it? Maybe they've invested in a rental property and yet they've been doing it for several decades but they're, you know, they're very high net worth. They've got a few million dollars in the bank. Um, you know, how, how do you talk to them from getting away from their comfort zone, that just that single family rental, and having them come in one of your projects, whether there's cash flow or not? Well, the first thing is uh, um, I never try and convince anyone of anything um, because if, as soon as anything feels forced, particular when it comes to raising capital, that's just getting into a zone you, you never want to go. So, you know, that's number one. Number two, I never ask anyone for money. Uh, but what I do is I offer people the opportunity to, to completely different perspective. Now, if I, 
you know, if I'm meeting someone who's never invested in real estate in their life and, you know, I have to take them from uh, owning shares of, let's say, General Electric into owning uh, a share of an, of an apartment building, I've got to take someone through a 180 degree shift in philosophy. That's a, that could be a pretty heavy lift. I really prefer not to do that. But if they own investment property, if they own real estate uh, for investment purposes, then they already understand the value. They understand how it works. And um, then from there, it's actually fairly easy to convince them that, you know, there's better alternatives. And when you're investing in a single family property, you are typically tying up a lot of cash. Uh, You're carrying more risk than you really should. You know, if I have a single family home, I can either experience zero vacancy or 100% vacancy and nothing in between. Whereas if I have a 100-unit building and I have a vacancy, well, I'm still at 90, 99% occupancy. I can, it's much more resilient. And the, you know, the second issue is when you're in dealing with, with small properties, you, it's very, it's very di- they're difficult to manage because they're geographically dispersed. Unless, you're, unless you have an entire subdivision that you own, they're geographically dispersed. So they're more difficult to manage. You're going to pay a higher percentage generally in property management cost, and it's very difficult to get any economies of scale. And when, if you're borrowing funds to, to fund some of those properties, the banks typically treat that as under residential underwriting rules, where the fundamental assumption is that your, your employment income is what's being used to repay that bank loan. Whereas in the world of commercial, they don't assume that. They assume that the asset is going to be the, the source of repaying the loan. You know, if, if you own a 100-unit building, your own individual salary isn't going to fix things if things go wrong in that building. It just can't. It's too big. So it has to be the performance of the asset. But when you're buying a, you know, single-family home or a townhouse or a duplex, you're assuming it's your, it's your W-2 income or, you know, your employment income that's the source of repayment of that loan. So they're fundamentally different worlds. Right. So I think your your philosophy is if if someone is not willing to fish or not willing to even see the different perspective, you just you don't waste your time and you just let them go. Correct. Yeah. It's you know it's got to feel like a natural fit to them. Um, you know, I'm certainly happy to educate someone on what we're doing, and you know, show them that you know what we're doing certainly makes sense for us. And I say this with with zero arrogance whatsoever. I mean, I know the projects we're doing are, are very strong projects. They're great deals. We wouldn't be doing them if it was otherwise. We just ha- we set a high standard, and if it doesn't meet that standard, we don't do it. So, you know, I'm not going to do a project that's, you know, got 10 or 15% profit margin. I, I see people doing projects like that all the time, and I think they're nuts. Because if you have one mistake, your margin is evaporated. If you have two mistakes, now you're upside down. I never want to be in that situation. I want to be in a project that has enough financial buffer that we can withstand a handful of mistakes because it is the real world. Things do go wrong in projects. And it could be through no fault of our own. It could be, you know, all of a sudden the city changes the zoning on us or something, you know, all of a sudden there's some new change to the building code and we've got to do something different that wasn't part of the plan. These things happen and uh, you've got to be able to withstand those. Do you ever like look at your, like the, I guess the class B, you have a little bit more wiggle room um, in terms of exit strategies. You know, if there was you know, a war, 
if North Korea did bomb Hawaii tomorrow, and real estate, there's a bit of a lag, what kind of things would you be doing in, in the current project to uh, leverage the pull? What kind of options do you have for exit strategies if, if the economy were to take a little bit of correction? You know, we, we've seen, we've gone through a few market cycles over the years. Uh, we went through a very significant market cycle, you know, starting in 2008. And that resulted in cap rates going up. That is to say, you know, properties did go down in price, even multi-unit properties. But multi-units didn't fall as much as single-family homes did. Don't forget, we didn't really have a real estate crisis in 2008. We had a banking crisis. The willingness of people to pay a price is in part determined by the availability of money. When the banks stopped lending and it was impossible to get a loan, the only buyers out there were cash buyers. And so, you know, if you look at supply-demand, uh, the, the, the demand for properties was limited to people who had cash. Well, that was a very small percentage of the market compared to what it had been previously. And we know that's true because as the banks loosened up their lending, prices have kind of restored to where they were pre-2008, not in every market but in a lot of markets they have. So it had a lot to do with liquidity in the banking system. You know, if there were to be a conflict uh, of some kind, well, what would that do to liquidity in the market? If, if people, if banks all of a sudden stop lending, then we could see a, a similar type situation, but people still need a place to live. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't expect uh, you know, even an armed conflict to result in massive dislocation of the U.S. population. Uh, the majority, vast majority of the 330 million people are going to continue to live where they're living today. Right. So in the last correction, 2008, the equity markets and the housing market were, you know, they both tracked downwards. Is that typically the case where, or can you have it where the equity markets take a dive, but the, the housing market stays stronger, even gets better? That's a good question. Um, you know, if you look at every single market correction, recession that's taken place over the last 30, 40 years, they've all been a little bit different. There have been no two that have been alike. So to look at what happened last time and say this is, you know, history is going to repeat itself, I think is, uh, I think is a little bit unlikely. Um, you know, people also talk about the market coming back after a recession. I also think that's not accurate. Markets don't come back. What will emerge will be different than what it was before the correction. Um, you know, the, the economic conditions are going to be completely different. So it's very difficult to just use the lessons of history uh, and expect that things are going to turn out just like they did before. Uh, it's almost never the case because, you know, this ebb and flow of, a population, you know, you have um, you have some states where that are have very high tax rates, and when people are dislocated, maybe through loss of a job, they may look for a job locally or they may relocate. Um, you know, we we've seen some states consistently losing population. Uh, in particular, you know, we talk about the Rust Belt in the northern states. There's been loss of population in a lot of the northern states. Where has that population gone? increasingly to the south, places like Texas, North Carolina, um, you know, places with favorable tax, um, favorable tax regimes. And, you know, the equity markets is, this is one where I personally have some strong feelings. 
you know, I grew up in a world where I owned stocks and bonds from a very young age. Family members, uh, my uncle owned a seat on the New York Stock Exchange. He was one of the members of the exchange before, you know, it became a public company. So I, I kind of grew up in that world. But today, I hold almost no shares in public companies. And the reason is very simple. When I was in my technology career, I was an officer of a public technology company. And I was listening to our CEO on the analyst calls uh, that happen every quarter where he was providing guidance to to the analysts and, and to Wall Street. And I was just thinking to myself, oh, my goodness, those poor investors, he, he just lied to the general public. And as I realized that the small investor really has no control. They really have no control. And how many other boardrooms in America is that taking place? That same kind of conversation where the guidance isn't quite accurate. So it was really then that I made the decision that to be in the equity markets in, in a very volatile equity market doesn't make sense. It didn't make sense for me. Whereas if I look at what I'm doing today as a real estate developer, I feel like I have way more control. You know, if I'm buying a property at 10 cents on the dollar and my pro forma shows that I'm going to generate 30% net margin at the end of the construction project and be able to refinance that project and recoup hundred percent of my investment and still have 30% equity. I feel like I have control. Maybe it, you know, maybe we have a few mishaps. Maybe it ends up being 25% equity. Um, you know, but that's not a disaster. That's, that's still a great outcome. Victor, what do I tell my friend who uh, is in entranced in this square company that does the point of sale in all these uh, these coffee bars and the restaurants that this this uh, this technology is here to stay and it's going to stock prices is going to keep going up and up and up and I don't need real estate investments. There's certainly some great store growth stories in technology companies. You know, Square is a good example of that. Square has continued to address an underserviced segment of the market, but you know what? There's going to be more competition entering that segment. The big question, I think the, the difficult question that a lot of people struggle with is not whether, you know, there's going to be more demand for that kind of product. Question is, is the share price at today's price a bargain or not? If I hand you a hundred dollar bill and I give it to you, and I say that it's worth $100, I'm going to give it to you for 80 bucks. You're going to take that deal because you can make a clean 20 bucks the second after we execute that transaction. If on the other hand, I give you that same $100 bill and I charge you 120 for it, why would you ever do that? It doesn't make any sense. And if I gave it to you at 100, well, you might do it, but there's no point. Now, when you talk about a $100 bill, it's pretty clear because we have this notion of what that thing is worth. But what is the Square stock worth? What is Apple worth? What is, you know, Alphabet worth? It's a little bit more subjective. You know, you talk about a price earnings multiple where it might be trading, let's say at a premium, it might be trading at 30 times earnings. Now, if the company is growing at, you know, 100% a year, if it's growing its earnings at 100% a year, well, that 30 times earnings looks like 15 times earnings 12 months from now. I might be That might be a more reasonable ratio. But that's predicated on that growth continuing, which is not a sure thing. There's a speculative component to that. Maybe that growth doesn't continue at the same rate. Now it starts to look overvalued. So 
uh, it really depends on, you know, th this notion of value. If I'm buying a property at 10 cents on the dollar, it, I'm pretty sure it's 10 cents on the dollar. I know I'm buying a bargain. If I'm buying a stock, am I buying a bargain? It's not clear all the time. All right. You're speculating. There's a bit of speculation. Yeah. Yeah, so I think people will probably, you know, see my progression. You know, I started in, with turnkey rentals and in the multifamily space, and now talking to folks like yourself, um, you know, who are in more in the development space. And and I mean, you, you hear the comp, the pros, and all of these things, and it's very compelling, and it makes so much sense. And but I'll, I'll just stress to a lot of the listeners that you know you got to start somewhere. You got to start with the single family home first, and get and get your get your liquidity up, get your cash flow up, so you can go to these these different type of investments. I mean, they all sound fine and dandy, but you know, you, you've got to start somewhere. And you've got to start somewhere. And more, mo most important thing is to make sure that you're working with people that have a solid track record. You know, that is the, really the only differentiator. Um, you know, if you're investing and this is a big distinction, you know, I really approach real estate investment as a business. And by my definition, a business is a team sport. You know, people don't invest in the self-employed. They invest in businesses which have scale. They have sustainability. They have a track record. You know, if if the CEO of the business happens to be out on vacation for a week on the beach, the business doesn't come to a stop. It continues to operate. So it's got to have that bench depth. It's got to have that sustainability. That's key. Thanks for coming on. Anything else you miss? You want to get your contact information out there? I'm happy to share. If uh, your listeners want to get in touch with me, they can uh, email me directly. My email is victor at victorjm.com. That's victor at victorjm.com. And if, you know, if your listeners are looking to raise capital, um, not to plug my own book, but frankly, the, the folks who have read my book have told me repeatedly how much it's helped them with the task of raising capital. And the key, by the way, whether you're raising to, looking to raise money or you're looking to invest, the same criteria that you need to meet to raise money are the same criteria you need to meet to make a good investment. So my book actually covers both. The same criteria that you would use as an investor are the same ones you would use to raise money. They're opposite sides of the same coin. So the book is Magnetic Capital. Uh, they can order directly from my website at victorjm.com or from Amazon. Uh, if they order from the website, they'll get a signed copy. If they order it from Amazon, it'll come a little bit quicker, but it won't be signed. Right. And, and the whole thing about raising money, I mean, we're not here with a, some MLM thing trying to sell soaps or Ginzu knives. The whole goal is, is to get people off of Wall Street and into hard assets and get them into Main Street, get them into these good assets that help the American people. Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, think about it. You know, we know about this relentless march, what's called inflation. And often people think about inflation as just being dr uh, driven by the consumer price index. You know, how much did did the price of bananas go up this week? You know, the other side of it is how much money is being printed. You know, what percentage of the money supply is being injected into the economy on an annual basis? And that has an inflationary impact as well. It's unlikely that inflation is going to go to zero. And if you want to hedge against inflation, if you want to protect yourself, it's very important to be in hard assets that are going to go up with inflation. Right. The country created this debt. And uh, the only way they're going to get rid of it is to inflate the money supply and get it out that way. Exactly. They'll never tax their way out of the, the current debt structure. All right, Victor. Well, I appreciate you coming on the line and uh, yeah, sharing us a little bit of your world. And um, 
if you guys want to get a hold of Victor, shoot him an email and uh, we'll see you guys next time. Thanks very much, Lane. Great talking to you. This website offers very general information concerning real estate for investment purposes. Every investor situation is unique. Always seek the services of licensed third-party appraisers and inspectors to verify the value and condition of any property you intend to purchase. Use the services of professional title and escrow companies and licensed tax, investment, and or legal advisor before relying on any information contained herein. Information is not guaranteed as in every investment there is risk. The content found here is just my opinion and things change and I reserve the right to change my mind. Above all else, do your own analysis and think for yourself because in the end, you are the only person who is going to look out for your best interests.